Now we don't have any value. Hello, Langdon. Hello, Eden. I, uh, I adjusted my power rating recently. Oh, is it no longer over 9,000? So I know I can still defeat anyone 12 or younger uh, anytime, any conditions. I can always win. Um, hmm. But now my upper bound is anyone 70 or older. It used to be... Um, it used to be 65 or older, but then I ran into a pretty powerful 60-year-old, and I don't like losing or challenges ever. So, you know, so that's the update. Uh, but I have I have a, a follow-up to the update. <clears throat> yeah? What about what we discussed last time? What about the Hebrew versions of Dragon Ball Z characters? I could not defeat any of these people. I've read I've read the Hebrew Bible. Um, I uh, if there is even so much as one dead ox or ass in the vicinity, I'm fucked. Well, to be fair, very little people could defeat. I mean, Goku. There are people who could defeat him, like Jesus Christ. I would. That's say. right. Yeah. But then Hebrew Goku. I I don't know about that one. He'd be super strong against against Jesus um, as well, so that would be an, a really unfair matchup. I think that he would not draw hands on um, our prophet Muhammad. I think mm. there'd be an understanding there. I think it would be a mutual thing. Like, no, we're not going to fight. We're brothers, like a stalemate. Exactly between equals. So that one's that one's less like anyone has lost, and more that like no fight has happened. Um, too much respect there. Um, Jesus, he would, he would defeat. Yes. Handedly, I would say. Oh yeah. Okay. So today we're going to do things a bit differently. Um, there are no more news. Yeah. News stopped. Thank God. Uh, Yes. Events in general and also objects and interactions thereof have ceased. We've become a universal body without organs, and that's your Deleuze for today. Fantastic. The revolution yeah. has arrived. Uh, and now so we are good. all free from, from the wheel of uh, fate. Actually, I lied. I said that we were going to do the book. But I actually want to talk about something else that just popped into my head. Uh, maybe it will be shorter. Maybe not. Did you and think about a 65-year-old that maybe I could be? I could think of several, but they're all like Hebrew Dragon Ball Z adjacent, and I think we kind of covered that. Mm. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, What's I on your mind? To... So this is like tangentially related to a bunch of stuff that we've spoken about in the past, but I wanted to talk about this concept that I've seen come up more and more recently, which is this pessimism. Um, or even morbidity with, uh, you know, thoughts and works about space. I think it's very interesting. You know, space is not the category of thought, right? (laughs) right? Um, It's interesting how much it vacillates, I think, between, you know, this this like utopian um, optimism and this morbid sort of pessimism. And it seems it's like on this pendulum, it kind of swings back and forth. I'll, t- I'll tell you why I've been thinking about this. I've been playing this game called Ixion. And this game... Heard good things about that game. Yeah. I mean, it's made by Bulwark Studios, who also made Warhammer 40k Mechanicus. That game is phenomenal. Yeah, that game um, tanks. <laughs> Yeah, turn-based strategy where you play tech priests that are going up against Necrons. Extremely our shit, right? Um, And then Ixion has a very interesting concept. I'll admit that when I started to play it, I kind of like raised my eyebrows because it has this like Elon Musk-esque figure um, that builds like this faster than light. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Faster than light kind of like arc, you know, to save humanity. But then... A a brief aside on that. 
a brief aside yeah, right. on that point. Do you do you know how do you know how much my skin crawled when the new Dream Theater record that came out, I think last year, was both phenomenal, like an incredible record, which I really wasn't expecting to get another one from them, and seemingly was a concept album about how much they like Elon Musk. <laughs> oh my I mean, immortal a, pain. I'd like a bunch of them like libertarians or like even Paul Trump or, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. 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 Anyway. So yeah. the thing about Ixion <laughs> is that you turn on the spaceship to supposedly like go and find an exoplanet where humanity can survive after climate change has destroyed Earth. And then instead of like taking you there, it blows up the moon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like it blows up the moon and then you also skip like I mean the spaceship skips like a hundred years into the future and you basically arrive to a solar system where humanity tore itself apart because things got substantially worse after the moon blew up <laughs> and they like ostracized every single person that was part of the company and part of the project and they like executed them in in city squares and then they all fell well, apart and kind of like i i get that i get that reaction yeah. if yeah, if sure. i knew who blew up the moon i'd probably be pretty steamed yeah. and then and then like <laughs> The rest of the game, I haven't finished it yet, but it's super oppressive. It does this thing where, like, well, actually, if you think about it, space is like awful. <laughs> like, it's, it's <laughs> terrible. It's it's like cold, and it wants to kill you. And if if, if you make one mistake, then everything goes to shit. And you're kind of like managing this uh, space station, spaceship, whatever. And you know, on on the on the brink of collapse. And it really does a very good job of like you know conveying this coldness and like this uh pessimism um towards um space which is very interesting because i think as time goes by we start to see more and more works like this right like uh whereas in the 90s i'm not even going back to the <laughs> 50s right like in the 90s space was you know there was a lot of like uh um epic over-the-top movies about yeah space is difficult but then you overcome things and it's like potential and exploration i'm not even talking about the 70s and the 80s where yeah. you get like a space odyssey and star wars and, and all this stuff so yeah, the birth of star trek and all that which is one of the biggest yeah, exactly. like um like even stellar star utopian trek, even star trek you know at the at the closer they came to the end of the 90s the more they were like yeah but what about terrorism in the <laughs> like what about like really complicated morally ambiguous characters and, and that that's true as the 90s get closer and closer to the millennium right uh star trek becomes edgier and to be honest like maybe something that blows like a hole in my reading of it star trek is, has gone back to being very optimistic whether you like the new uh, series or not i think some of them are good and some of them are not but like the flagship one discovery is very much like a wide-eyed you know yeah um exploration stuff like that and St uh, strange new worlds which i adored also goes back to that kind of like enterprise sort of vibe so i don't know i don't know what i was baffled on, at how good strange new world was like that yeah, that was I did not i did not like discovery at all not because of Oh, it's woke or whatever. Obviously, I just found the dialogue yeah. to be very, very on the nose, and all Same. like the fan service. But then, Strange New Worlds is like good old trick. It's it's made. I, I, I walked in expecting like, okay, they're gonna swing for something, and they have just writers that I'm not connecting with, and this is gonna. And then it was like two episodes in, I was like, fuck, no, wait, no, they're doing it. Fuck, like, <laughs> yeah. I I always yeah. love eating crow on that kind of stuff. For sure. Actually, I have, win -win. I, have, I have a couple. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I have a couple thoughts on the whole space thing, which actually maps to some discussions I was having recently, because again, we have one big brain. Um <clears throat> that a lot of a lot of our feelings about space and the potentiality of space becomes sort of for the a-religious to anti-religious person's version of mapping anxieties onto the afterlife where hmm. it's a similar level of a, a great big unknown with a whole lot of potential. The, the big difference is obviously space is materially real. Um, but 
even still, we we map onto our anxieties about eternity, um, life and death, um, human, the value of human culture and human civilization. Is it a net positive, a net negative? Is it neutral? Um, like it becomes this vestibule that we can throw all of our anxieties, both personal and then cultural, onto because it can't really talk back to us the same way that like God and the afterlife can't super duper talk back to us so we can just sort of project endlessly all of our our wave of anxieties onto this space um which then makes more um it, it it's striking how kind of boring techno realist works about space are that view it as like yeah it's a big engineering problem with a lot of risks but you know isn't everything <laughs> and we're like, no, no, you're supposed to be angry or happy. You can't just be normal. Like, <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, Ixion specifically does very good work of, you know, hinting at the themes that you mentioned. I mean, the name itself, Ixion was a, a, a king in, in Greece mythology who did like, he was a dick. It's like real yeah. asshole. Uh, <clears throat> he's like, Basically, the Greek mythology is Fino, right? He's like the first man who who did kinslaying, basically. Um, and as punishment, and also for a bunch of other sh- stupid shit that he does, um, Zeus binds him to a wheel, like a fiery wheel that always keeps spinning. And then he's bound to like this burning wheel in, in Tartarus, right? Um, so, oh, and, and, and by the way, the wheel only stops when Orpheus plays the lyre. Um, in the underworld. We talked about Orpheus a few episodes ago. Um, so, but not just with Ixion, they also, they do this interesting meld between Greek mythology, but also a bunch of stuff is called like st- stuff after Norse mythology, like Vanir Drive and stuff like that. And they do a really good job of, of what you said. Like, think about this arc, you know, making its way alone in, in space far away from humanity. Um in what sense is that not the afterlife, right? Like, in what sense are they yeah. alive? They're, they're hanging around in this suspended state. And, and I think that's another really important thing. It's not, in general, just a stand-in, psychological stand-in for the afterlife, but also specifically a stand-in for limbo, right? Like, this area where, at least when I die, right, final death, I dissipate. Right? There's peace in there because... I kind of like vanish into nothingness. Think about Greek mythology as well, right? Like the people who stay in Elysium or Tartarus or whoever, um, they, they're they not the most lucky, right? The most lucky are those that completely yeah. dissipate into nothingness. Whereas here and, and space um, as well is, is perceived as this like liminal, he said the word, um, <laughs> but actually liminal, not like uh, someone snapping a picture of like an empty classroom and saying, ooh, it's liminal, right? Bro, um, have you seen this hallway? <laughs> <laughs> it has doors, man. It's so spooky. Um, <laughs> like space is essentially the most liminal space imaginable, yeah. right? Because it is literally in between every other thing that has ever or will ever exist. Um, so like, it's interesting, you know, we meet this idea of this place and then we have completely separate reactions, I think, depending on the sort of cultural moment that we find ourselves in. And I'm not going to be as brazenly pretentious as to say that I understand which cultural moment translates into which sort of reaction, right? I actually think it's a super complicated question and we can't really answer oh, yeah. it, but it's, it's interesting to pause at like certain moments in history. By the way, going back before modern times as well, right? Um, and thinking about like the ancient world or early modern eras and, and of course uh, Renaissance and, and the Middle Ages and so on and, and, and analyze like what, how do humans react to this uh, encounter, right? With this uh, very um, blank place. Interestingly enough, We've already covered um, M. John Harrison's light on the podcast. Yeah. And I think um, he does, and this is actually a good segue into the book, right? We don't have to do music because it's like a shorter segment. Um, but he does, I think, a fantastic job of 
talking about all of this, not just in Light, but also in the two sequels that come after it, Nova Swing, which is one of my all-time favorite books, more than Light, by the way. I think it's fantastic. Um, and then also, oh, what's the last one called? Something a Haunting. Empty Space is a Haunting. Um, God damn, does... that's a good title. Yes, and also it's a very, very, very good book. Um, if you believe Not it. Not a shock, that guy's a... Yeah. <laughs> um, he does really good work at like, so I don't want to say I'm going to say another world hyper object. Um, oh, God, of... yeah. Oh, oh, I'm rigid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but it's sort of like doing the, the memeified version of, of hyper objects that now taking over like online discourse. But if someone doesn't know the, not familiar with the concept, it's this idea first um, suggested by philosopher Timothy Morton in their exploration of object-oriented ontology. We won't get into that. But the idea is, is an object... Um, so well not necessarily big but so massive in, in all sorts of scales that it kind of breaks our perceptions of space and time themselves so think about stuff like climate change right like climate change is everywhere and nowhere at once we are responsible as individuals for it but also completely divorced from its consequences at the same time and we can think about more um, if we're talking about space one of my favorite ones is umuamua that like object that went through the, the solar long, system yeah the long tube of rock that just sort yeah. of vibes and through then, space exactly and then someone like a scientist like calculated its trajectory and said yeah this is this object has probably been flying through space like 150 million years and you just hear that figure and you're like huh what do you, what do you mean 150 like, million what is that like scientists will also bring up like the flight to another star even a close one is on such mm -hmm. a time scale that like it doesn't you can write it down and write sci-fi stories about it but i challenge you to actually have a deep emotional sense when the thought of i haven't seen this person for 20 years and they're still the same that that being a kind of uncanny feeling and then you're like yeah you'd be traveling on a ship for thirty thousand years and yeah. you're like <laughs> yeah exactly so and I you have all the fun things of like what's the smallest hyper object you can think of that would still be a hyper object and you still get brain breaking well, like ask anyone to explain weather systems regular weather explain it yeah in a predictive yeah. so, manner and it's yeah actually uh the smallest hyper object is a question i really like because the answer the smallest one is actually the atom um yep. <laughs> the at the atom is a hyper object because like you can't perceive its presence in space not in the sense that you can actually see or not see it but the concept of a unit a thing an object that is so small um actually breaks your perspective on reality anyway so harrison does a really really good work of um talking about these scales and how space kind of like forces us to confront them um in his books now the segue is uh, there have been a lot of potential segues into the Troika. <laughs> For sure. So I, I was sitting here delighted, like, oh, we're accidentally doing it again. We're accidentally talking about the book without doing it. Yeah. We're yeah. going to sound so, so smart. <laughs> so smart. The, the, the clout, the clout is off the charts. Mm. Um, the 50 people listening to this will give us uh, immense clout. Um, That's so, so true. Incidentally, Nova Swing which is interesting, the second book out of the um, Kefahuchi Tract trilogy won the Philip K. Dick Award for 2007. Now, the Philip K. Dick Award is a very interesting award, both because, um, of course, the, the, the man it was named after who had his birthday two days ago, uh, by the way. Happy, um, birthday, happy birthday, King. Yes, the King. Um, and, and also sort of like the choices that they make uh, to award this uh, award to are very interesting. It, it tends to highlight less, let's say, the Yugos and the Nebulas usually follow a very sort of, uh, not, not in a derogatory sense, populist sort of line, where very popular books are usually awarded um, with those awards. Whereas some of these books in the Philip K. Dick Award are very famous, right? Like Neuromancer won it in 1984. And... Um, what else is famous on here? Uh, Stephen Baxter is on here. And th there was like a really big one that now I can't like find that was on here. Like it, they don't always give it to obscure stuff. But then, you know, in 1993, um, 
they gave it to uh going up weightless by john m fold that's a really good book that like no one ever talks about um they gave it to nova swing as we said they did give it to altered carbon which is another that's the famous one that i wanted to talk about um that guy they sucks gave it, the book is great but that guy sucks yeah, the, guy, the guy sucks <laughs> for sure uh the, the books are, are, are good um anyway and they also gave this award in t- 1997 to the troika by a guy so the name doesn't have an H, but he's American. So I don't know if it's Stefan or Stepan, or I don't know how you pronounce his name, but uh, I'll, I'll say Stefan and hopefully I'm right. So uh, Stefan Chapman, who was an American writer um, of <laughs> science fiction, uh, surrealism, um, something in those spaces he, let, let he, me, yeah, he's, he's he's like if um this this actually comes to play on uh on the troika quite a bit he's he's a hell of a lot like beckett he he reads like if beckett and the weird more sci-fi end of burroughs got got to hang out more often than they did um with a dash of with a dash of vandermeer oh yeah well, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's more that you can definitely feel that Vandermeer has read this guy's work, and oh, had, it, Vandermeer, it's, it's, Vandermeer wrote the intro to the edition that we read. Oh fuck! Um, yeah, I yeah. <laughs> I'm stupid. <laughs> but uh, like even specifically to the point where the Troika, if I had to do a capsule explanation to like my literary people, it's quite literally what if Waiting Godot, uh, one of the guys was a truck. okay so so uh, this guy this is his only um novel and also calling it a novel is a bit deceptive because it is a bunch of uh short stories that were collected together and vandermeer actually says that he spoke to chapman when chapman was alive chapman passed in 2014 and chapman kind of told him that he was never sure whether these should go together in one collection but vandermeer is pretty adamant about like the added value that they have as um a series um, and other than that, he wrote like a lot of uh, short fiction, mostly published in Damon Knight's um, Orbit anthologies, obviously extremely famous um, anthologies and extremely famous person. Uh, but uh, Chapman himself is is so underread and underknown that he doesn't even, even have like his, his Wikipedia article is basically a stump, right? Um, yeah. He doesn't have like bibliography, doesn't have anything like that. Um, and when you do go into his bibliography in the... Um, this fiction speculative uh, database, um, you do see his short stories, but Troika is his only novel. Now, if there, imagine I'm holding like this huge dial and it says weirdness on top of it. It, <laughs> it obviously, it goes up to 11, right? Of course, because we're, we're a metal show. Um, so I would say that something like, right, Le Guin is like a one. Right? Yeah, and Philip K. Dick. I mean, some ninety percent of Philip K. Dick is like a three, and then some of it is like a four. Right, like Blood Money, for example, which is a very weird book. And then you start to get into the stuff that we usually cover on the cast. You know, your Harrisons and Vandermeer and all those guys, and that's like a six or seven. Some of them, uh, you know, we covered that Astronauts, which is a very weird book. And then you start to go into your modern right we cover that um, <laughs> and like your your weirdo stuff and you're like at nine and then the troika is like 15 right like the dial has broken we have it, twisted it as far as it goes my 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 point of comparison to beckett um was in part deliberate because like this is it leans so far into there that my brain and this is similar when we start reading anyone that's like truly deeply weird your brain can't really reach for other sci-fi writers anymore because even one of the main sort of mainstays of science fiction writing, specifically separating that from speculative fiction writing, yeah. it is a kind of grounding in reality. Like it's 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 out there, you know, you are making speculations and stuff, you're projecting forward, you're you're modifying how science works, all that kind of stuff. But you're grounding it in some way. <clears throat> I read in some places that some people read this as like a fantasy novel. And even that feels like a failure because it, it's not, it really doesn't move like a fantasy novel either. It, it, it moves, 
like if, again, like what if Samuel Beckett was born like a couple decades later? So he'd been mainlining like golden age sci-fi instead of like James Joyce. But also he has read James Joyce. Like (laughs) So let me read you the completely inadequate plot summary on Wikipedia that will give you like (laughs) the bare bones of what we're talking about here and and then we can dive into it. So the novel introduces three beings, a jeep, a dinosaur, and an old Mexican woman traveling across a desert under the glare of three suns. They have been traveling for centuries, though they do not know why they are crossing the desert or if they will ever reach the other side. The characters have each changed bodies several times. Their travels are interspersed with dream sequence-like flashbacks describing various transformed versions of the 20th century. They're completely inadequate. Um, yeah, that kind of it's like, what I, that does so, technically happen. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Correct. So, okay. So here's the thing. Y- yes, one of the characters is a Jeep. So, so we have three characters. We have Alex. He's the Jeep. Um, Ava who is the old Mexican woman, and Naomi, who is the brontosaur. Now, maybe she's like actually their daughter, but also maybe not. The three of them are traversing what is, at first, obviously purgatory, right? It's like this blank Nevada desert. (laughs) It's actually in Nevada, right? Like they, they, They come across settlements, but the settlements are all abandoned, and they've been walking for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, every so often, and it, at first it seems random, but it's actually like tied into how much they bicker and fight with each other, they are beset by storms. And what these storms do is they shuffle their um, souls, basically, between the bodies. So after the storm, they'll wake up and Alex will be in the brontosaur and Naomi will be in the car and Eva will still be in a body or, or, or some sort of like other um, arrangement, and, yeah. arrangement exactly of those. <clears throat> now, while they are traversing this space, they tell each other stories about who they were before they um, arrived to whatever, wherever they are. Now to say that they are unreliable narrators would be, <laughs> <laughs> a massive understatement because one, the stories that they tell are impossible. Two, they contradict each other. That is, they're supposedly talking about the same period of time, but in Eva's stories, which are my favorite parts of this book, holy fucking shit. They're like, imagine, have you seen The Yellow Submarine by the Beatles? So yeah. imagine that, <laughs> way more LSD. Um Everything is marine. All of the marine life is like segmented into classes, racial classes, with like the squids being surgeons and the anemones being like uh, this parasitic priest class and uh, remoras and scuttlefish and eels. And it's like this uh, psychedelic. The colors are fucking bizarre. And could you do phrenology on a sea creature? He does it in this book, like Eva, Eva at least does it, or like the setting. Does it. <laughs> um, uh, he answers a hypothesis I didn't even know that I had. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and that's like that entire storyline is actually about um, suicide. By the way, yeah, massive ultra trigger warning about this whole thing. Um, it's yeah. it's at the end of the day about like mental illness and mental collapse and so on. So that that entire story is about. When is it worth to kill yourself, basically? Um, and what are the things that people take their own lives for and how those like relationships develop? And then, but at the same time, Alex, his storyline is the hardest to read because it's fucking depressing. Um, he's a guy who works at a factory and slowly changes parts of his body with um, mechanical prosthetics but also as time goes by he becomes a full machine and he's like a cleanup truck for the apocalypse um and his stories are like filled with really like senseless violence like this guy read modern dude there's no way he didn't read modern there's no way he had to have like he, he had yeah. to have <laughs> like, like at some point alex like there's this really fucked up story where he's this like um 
exterminator truck that has like a dummy inside of it and he can like move his consciousness between the truck and a dummy but they become like separate so it's he like duplicates his consciousness and and this dummy like supposedly goes to one of the last living humans um the house they have insects and in the process of like exterminating the insects they burn down the entire house and when the human comes back they they liquidate that human like they kill them by blowing them to pieces <laughs> and they hate they alex hates himself like majorly so but instead of committing suicide like ava resists doing in her stories he wholeheartedly destroys himself with technology and taking it into his own body and naomi tells a story again of the same period of time supposedly the 20th century where this is the hardest to read because it's really gruesome um she's like this so canada <laughs> invents the sort of army where they freeze a bunch of women uh, and inject them with like superpowers to unfreeze them when the war starts so they're like a surprise force and she's one of those um soldiers but like they promise them that when they freeze them they'll go to sleep and they won't be conscious but they're not they're like awake for the entire decades that they're frozen and instead of staying there she breaks out and she becomes this like Cronenberg-esque monster that is able to dissolve other people's bodies and um, suck them into herself. Yeah. <laughs> so those are your characters. Now, <laughs> so the wheel dial is at like seven, I would say, right? Um, but then you find out the meta plot. The meta plot is that this is purgatory. In the sense that there are angels, and those angels are all like psychiatrists trying to find out the best way to get to make humans better. It's like the good place. If the good place had like <laughs> instead of shallow readings of I like the good place to be fair, but like the philosophy there is super shallow. Like yeah. shallow readings of Aristotle and like Kierkegaard, it would have been like super in-depth readings of Dostoevsky and Balzac and like Russian nihilists. Um, there's, there's an angel in, in those like uh in, in that like psychiatric kind of like angel core who has convinced the other angels that this is the best way like if you put these people in purgatory and get them to swap souls um they will develop empathy but the thing is the experiment has failed like they still hate each other they're still bickering and instead of letting it go he is um making the experiment more and more about himself and like his power play with the other angels now there's other like it even was, bigger stuff it into was, that but yeah go ahead it was hard for me not to read this part also as a commentary <clears throat> on because mm. this book screams i'm doing meta commentary on a billion things um yeah it, it, there were bits of that, that that felt like he had to have been commenting on like the empathy engine read of like the power of literature and taking a slightly more not quite nihilistic, but at least a more solipsistic view of like literature absolutely can show us a window to another person and you can inhabit that window, but we don't really actually see strong historical evidence that inhabiting that window of another person's personhood actually satisfactorily changes or transforms a person in any kind of consistent manner. Yeah, for sure. And so and angels think, as like yeah. these authorial figures and the the intersection of these false stories as at least in part being like riffing on fiction as a form i don't obviously that's also not the only thing going on here which which thrilled me because it would be kind of boring if it just felt like a meta text commenting on on bookness but it, it the classic thing the book feels like it's on fire every time you're reading it it's like this guy's brain was fucking burning and unlike yeah. the moderan guy, what if instead of taking so many amphetamines, your eyes can't look at the same direction anymore? Uh, you just, <laughs> you've gone fully spider-brained in terms of, like, thinking hard thoughts. And the only way you can convey them now is, uh, truck woman. Yeah, and I think that it's an interesting uh, showcase of the relationship between ideas and their literary forms, because the short fiction... Uh, the short story format really contributes to that feverish feeling that Langdon yeah. um, discussed because there's a lot of starts and stops, right? So you get a story of the 20th century or whatever. Again, they're lying. Like, this is not stuff that happened. 
Um, but you get a story of the 20th century, and then you get a passage in Purgatory or a passage with the angels, and then you get another short story. Sometimes it's the same setting, like Alex will give two stories, or Naomi or Eva, uh, and more often it jumps between them, creating this like whiplash disorientation because it's not just that, like I said, that they contradict each other, they also contradict themselves. So one of the best stories, when you read Ava's first story, that's the one where it's like this cacophony and this cornucopia of marine life that is having this weird religious ritual wherein they sacrifice like a young woman to the whale god which they worship. Yes, these books are fucking so cool, by the way. If they sound cool, it's because <laughs> these stories are so cool. Um and then the second time that we revisit her, that society is also different and is twisted into this like diesel punk abomination where the fish society is like living in this horrible 19th century squalor with like rigid social stratification and, and like horrible mutilations. Also, he does really interesting things. By the way, I will say, before I say what I, I was going to say, this is kind of dated it was written in 1997 so there's a lot of like really crass discussion of in particular transness um in yeah Ava's stories but you can tell that he's it. yeah you go on go ahead y- you I can tell that say... he's he's trying it does not pass yeah. for now um <laughs> I, I was gonna say like he's coming at it quote unquote from our side of it right like so to be blunt in, in the diesel punk setting Eva is a sex worker and specifically she's a sex worker who belonged to like the most sacrosanct class of the uh, the society but she has done like massive body modifications to look like um, this like most common of uh, fish and people get off the fetishization of that space right that tension between you know touching the most sacrosanct of uh, classes and um, for lack of a better word, slumming it, right? But it's very obvious in his descriptions of it that he's actually talking about the way that a lot of men, um, that is cis men, fetishize trans um, sex workers, right? And fetishize trans people in general. Um, and he often does it crass, you know, in a crass way. And some of the terms that he uses are, are terms that are no longer acceptable, uh, for good reason, by the way. Um, I'm yeah. not doing like uh, they, they cancel Chapman or something like that. Um, basically, because no one knows who this guy is, so you can't really cancel him. Um, it, but it's, it's the classic problem of you look back at the the history of terms and the evolution of thoughts, and and you have to hold space for these thoughts have always been in evolution. Like that's why in you get told this in like your first grad class uh, ever. The reason why you have things called like gender studies or racial studies or um, feminist studies in the active tense is because they're perpetually evolving. Um, yeah. Like they aren't static. We're not going to find the perfect crystal that never needs to change. And so yeah. you can sort of look here and go, he clearly is making, also he's drawing from avant-garde traditions that really do value transgressive language when discussing these things because it's meant to be confrontational and we can be plus or minus about that whether we think that that's broadly politically useful or not but like he is in the company of people like kathy acker who you're not really going to come swinging for yeah um even sure. though you wouldn't talk like them now for good reason <laughs> like <laughs> you would you would not just quote this book <laughs> Yeah, and I think this also opens up a discussion of another thing that this book does interestingly, which is it, it touches upon this idea that we talk about a lot in this cast, like with the previous episode about the physiognomy and also Book of the New Sun, stuff like that. It kind of like asks the question, is the unreliable narrator, and not just the unreliable in the sense that they're not telling you the truth, but also that they're terrible moral figures, in what sense is this a useful literary device? Right, Because this book is confusing like it's yeah. pure confusion you, you have to let go i i try to like apply my book of the new sun brain to this book and <laughs> i had a really bad time like no, no 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 no, the point is not you know there's like clues in eva's story that and uh, naomi is in there and but she's not calling her naomi and we gotta piece it together no this is literally the minds of three individuals breaking down under sustained psychological torture 
And the the it angels becomes, are the same thing. For 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 people for people like for people like us, where where you read a hell of a lot, and it's not just fiction, you're also reading philosophy. You can at a certain point reach. Um, I ran into this a lot with writing stuff. Um, I, I had a huge writer's block for for years and years and years, and that's because part of my brain craved a kind of total realism. Um, that's not necessarily a total coherence to this world, although in my case it was. It's more like when we talk about Book of the New Sun, there's a lot of surrealist moments, but there is an assurance, especially as you make certain like insights, that this is all one big system. Everything does make sense with each other. And certain books reward that kind of approach. And it's sort of like part of the thing that tickles your brain, or if you're like me and Eden and Gareth, if you have a virulent brain <laughs> disease, um, you crave in a certain way, what's the grandest project of this kind that we can make? Partly because if we're honest, it uh, assuages certain kinds of broader existential and experiential um traumas and anxieties of like, you know, what's the grandest project of this kind that you can make? But at a certain point, you reach what feels like, again, the, the actual use of this, you reach the liminal edge of how far you can make a hyper-rationalist, hyper-realist work or super-realist work in a certain way. Um, and the only way further, this is where this is where he gets his name, the king, the only way further is through that Philip K. Dickian or... Beckettsian or Joycean, all these figures are doing roughly the same thing. Robert Anton Wilson with Illuminatus. You you break reality and you make basically a massive schizoid fiction. Um, yeah. There's like there, there's no other way to describe it. It's like you have a meshwork of realities and of realisms, but they don't cohere with each other and they rarely cohere deeply with themselves. And that's because they're driven by and this is more explaining why here we like Deleuze. Um, it's that Deleuzian impulse. Is what if you reject in some capacity the Hegelian hyper-rationalist view of the structure of the world, which, it, which is true of the real world, but in art, a place where suddenly you can break these rules. You do not have to just mirror the world. You can now suddenly make this schizoid Deleuzian nightmare mesh work, um, which well, is so ironically I, a lot closer to the inside of our brains. Yeah, I, I want to push on. I agree with everything you said, but I want to push on that distinction between, you know, the Hegelian kind of like rationalistic constructed view of reality being more true for the real, whereas like the schizoid fragmented plateau based perception of Deleuze for art and I think one of the things that fiction tries to do, or, or will fiction at least, is to ask the reason that art and culture is is fragmented is because our brains are fragmented, right? Like, we're not animals that are good at thinking in more than the present. Um, we can do it. We can think about the future and we can conceptualize the past, but we do it in like a really stop and start way. What if we took that impulse and we like... Um, made it worse, right? Like we deepened it. We get the Troika or we get the Book of the New Sun or Dead Astronauts or House of Leaves or any of that stuff. And then it asks like, well, if this machine that we have for perceiving reality is so fundamentally broken, in what way can we even perceive any of the Hegelian superstructures and orders and stuff like that? And I think that's also an interesting discussion to have around politics, right? I think that's yes. one of the criticisms of newer Marxist tendencies to go, listen, no, history is not broken down into easily possible and forever developing stages of consciousness and industrial sophistication. Instead, it's this like back and forth, stop, start, fall and rise kind of structure, which is much harder to pulse. But the bottom line is still the bottom line, right? The bottom line is we need to do better and we need to you know, do the revolution and have the proletariat running things. But the way forwards is not by laying out these super clear paths. I think the Troika... It, go ahead, go ahead. 
yeah it's 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 uh to 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 make sort of legible something that comes up in 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 Deleuze a lot this is why he refers to these things as flows and why he says that like you have to reject an arborescent view of things for a rhizomatic one what he means is quite literally when you have that sort of very strict orthodox marxist view of like there is an up to history and there is a down to history everything flows up and you can put certain things higher and certain things lower. We don't really see that in the world. We see, we do see motion, but the motion is more like if you're deep in the ocean and you wake up deep in the ocean, you don't know which way is up and which way is down. Which You do know that this is that way, and if I turn, it is no longer that way. However, the classic thing, if I go long enough and I get winded long enough, I may lose my orientation. And the the flows still exist. Tides still exist. I may not know where they are flowing to. I may not know if it's flowing up or down, but I do know that there are tides. And this really, yeah, hyper yeah. congeals. That. So, so then the Troika comes in and says, you know, all these concepts are like very highbrow and they seem divorced from what we actually end up experiencing. So let me help you feel... <laughs> the confusion of the real, right? Like if you're having problems because there are many mechanisms in your brain that their job is to smooth over the chaos, right? Like think about stuff like gestalt theory, right? We don't perceive separate things. Our brain kind of like does the addition in, in the subconscious and then it spits out a gestalt. And then when something, gestalt being something unified, right, in German, but then when something doesn't fit the gestalt, we have these very strong brushes, kind of like in Photoshop, where we used to like delete these things that don't fit into our worldviews. So what the Troika is saying, okay, but what if I showed you characters and for the power of literature, I would bring you into the world that, that don't have a gestalt or the gestalt is super fragmented and they've lost a grip on that, um, fuck, what's the German word for like worldview? Um, the, um, the, the no, no, not um, the same. Um, um, whatever, it, it doesn't matter. It's fine. The world spirit. Um, it's something. Weltschauung. Weltanschauung. That's the word. Sorry. Um, there's also Weltschmerz. That's another thing that they use. But uh, uh, Weltanschauung is used in um, Kant, and then also in um, uh, uh, Fichte uses it, and and uh, Frege, and all those guys. Um, and I'm probably mispronouncing it, but you can Google it. I don't care. Um, stupid language anyway. So yep, that's what, right. <laughs> if the, yeah, what if the worldview was um, shattered? What, what would that look like? And, and to be honest, that's why Troika is very interesting. That's kind of the effort of all the other works that we've cited. And in a sense, what Philip K. Dick was also trying to show us, right? Um, in, in, in Philip's work, it was often you know drug-related, and he tried to convey like what he felt when he took LSD in the 50s like he admitted to a lot of his literature being um you know inspired by inspired is the wrong word because it have a positive connotation and he was very <laughs> critical of of what happened in the 50s with lsd and how many of his friends end up, ended up dying um because of, of that drug um but but he tried to get across what it feels like to have your perception of reality your gestalt shattered and dead astronauts for sure does that god damn i need to read that book it's so fucking good um our perennial nemesis that we always avoid reading, Dalgren by, by Delaney, not not reading because we have read it, but doing a, a podcast about it, um, <laughs> is is a lot about that, right? Like in the American desolation, in the book it's post-apocalyptic, but in reality it's not post-apocalyptic. It's already a, des- a desolate land. How does it and feel like to... Yeah, go ahead. Especially because in that book he, he is quietly, you can pick up different clues that he's talking about an alternate present rather than a future because he's... A, yeah. a gay a gay black man in america I mean, he's he's very not happy <laughs> yeah exactly no let, let's but, stop talking about that again because we will do an, an episode about it at some point I oh promise. yeah episode um, yeah singular episodes. oh that's that's ambitious yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, like, so, we're gonna pack that into one hour okay good luck um yeah but so yeah, it's it 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 winds up all of this sort of circles back to the long t- for for someone like me i think about this a lot the long tail effect of um, how the 1800s provided a kind of deep rationalist um, 
framework for the world and different people had different rationalist frameworks, but they all sort of had rationalist frameworks of different kinds. And then the way that World War One shattered that and then the psychedelic era of the late 40s into the uh, mid 60s sort of confirmed all of those but I think worst fears I saw, of like yeah so, sorry to cut you off but i think like i i agree with what you're saying but i think those kind of like the very uh neat little progressions is exactly what these books are trying to fight against right like think about uh, let me give you an example Society, like our society, we live in it, Joker time, um, <laughs> has, in a very interesting way, completely neutered, and I, I use that word on purpose, uh, the Marquis de Sade, right? Like, yeah, it, it was like the Marquis de Sade was a was a hedonist, and that's all he was, right? Like, he liked to talk about sex because he liked to think about people fucking. And like they completely took out the fact that the Marquis de Sade was a radical revolutionary anti-monarchist. Like, you know who was in the Bastille <laughs> when the revolution tore it down? The fucking Marquis de Sade. Like, and he he wasn't that. thrown in the the jail for political prisoners because people yeah. thought his books were gross because they exactly. were doing all of the things in those books. Like, oh yeah, yeah. If there's one thing we know about people in the past is they were fucking freaks, man. Oh um, god, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So like. Uh, that's a good example because it doesn't fit like the 1800s. I'm not blaming you, obviously. I'm just talking yeah. about the kind of reading. It, it's supposed well, it, to be it Rousseau. Comes, we have these moments of like mass revelation, is, is I suppose a better way to put it. That like this is the way things have always been. And every now and again, we have this eruptive moment where it seems like a lot of people lurch up and go, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. But I'm, like, but I'm gonna be a dick and I'm gonna say that that's also, I think, like not going far enough. And I think the full rhizomatic thing is to say, like, those eruptive moments only seem eruptive when we look at them in retrospect. And like in 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 actuality, those deviations will always extant in the systems, and they won't even deviations as far as you know what go. I've I've read too much Delanda to disagree with you. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I'm thinking like, back and I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that tracks. Why, yep. Mm -hmm. Like <laughs> it's funny to me that we're talking about the French Revolution in a discussion about the Troika, because it like I don't think they're uh, directly related, but in ways they are. Like it's not it, that the Saint Culotte were created by the revolution. Like the Saint Culotte and their and even farther, there's like the nameless amount of people that weren't even Saint Culottes that were involved in especially the first stages of the, of the revolution. Um, the, it's not like they appeared because of the revolution. They always existed. They were just invisible to us, right? Yeah, I and mean, like, this, this is part to, to loop back to the Invisibles uh, thing, with our first multi-volume uh, thing that we covered here that includes the Marquis de Sade and, and these people and exactly the kinds of terms you're bringing up. Um, it's... And also to loop in Deleuze, it's like we look at these potentialities that exist inside of people and different historical material conditions can sort of lift them above the murk and mire of the purely psychological, but they're there. They, they have, they have to be there. Like they can't, <laughs> you can't lift something up that isn't, that doesn't exist. Yeah. So and we can talk about coming into being and all of that stuff and becoming the capital B version of becoming. But yeah, it's like it's still the 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 raw material has to be there. If anything, something like Troika, I think this sort of um this sort of hits at why we do what we do of like how 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 a book about a funky dinosaur and her pet truck um <laughs> uh, and a fish woman um can like break open and just sort of just start spilling out all of this stuff like that that yeah. that's the thrill like if it was just about like hey isn't this book crazy that you know that's not that's okay i mean but, it's it's fun but it's not it's not a topic for a podcast right yeah um and and i, and I do like how this episode was you know, it took us all the way to the French Revolution and then back in like other stuff and, and it was kind of scattered because that really is the mindset that the book puts <laughs> you in. It's like a very hectic experience to read it because it whiplashes you on purpose. And, and to be clear, it doesn't do that because the writer is not skilled at like weaving things together. This is completely intentional. Like Chapman is, by the way, the the sentence to sentence writing in these books is fantastic. It that's is that's the thing very, that 
because you if you're on the internet for long enough you're going to run into a bunch of weird writing and that it's going to be a varying qualities because weird writing is sort of the thing du jour of especially our generation of internet writing um it seems to be fading for younger audiences or at least changing shape um but especially for like a 10-year window of like 2008 to 2018 that was that was the thing it had been an underground thing for a while and then it became like the thing um so like you you can find all kinds of weird writing and all kinds of of bits but you can also every now and again find one that i'm gonna valorize drill again every now and again you get something like a drill where you put you you point at it and you go it, he's doing it like i don't I, I don't have words everyone makes weird dumb like schizoid posting jokes but he's somehow been given the Ap- apollonic insight into the super rationalism of the real um and like <laughs> yeah th- this this book being a similar kind of feeling or like when you encounter philip k dick for the first time it's like you can read all kinds of pulp writers who play with psychedelic stuff but then it's like every now and again you find the thing and you're like oh this is why every bad psych rock band exists because every now and again you get the one where it does feel like you're unraveling the universe yeah I completely agree. Okay. Music. And to think we very Um, nearly didn't record this today. Fate works in funny ways. We would have done it next week anyway. Um, But would it have been the the same episode? Um, I I think it's only appropriate that I play a track from Ixion's um, soundtrack. It was made by Guillaume David, if I mispronounce that, I don't care because the French language is made up just like any other language. Um, this guy also made um, Mechanicus's soundtrack, which bangs incredibly fucking hard. So think about, um, yeah, like Synthwave, of course, but um, much darker. So I don't want to say Perturbator because that guy is like has some questionable... Um, yeah. friends and ideas but it is of that kind of like uh, sometimes called cyber wave or like dark synth wave kind of vibe if you're not familiar I'm not going to play from the Mechanica soundtrack but just search for Children of the Omnissiah that is the best track from the uh, Mechanicus um, soundtrack and I'm going to play uh, the opening track from Ixion's um, soundtrack called Vanir's Legacy this is the track that plays when you hyper jump Right. Um, so think about that. Like, think about what the soundtrack would sound like on an optimist um, creation. It would be like all you know, glory and exploration. Whereas here, it's a uh, way darker, more oppressive, and industrial. And I don't know. Think about like the question that we raised at the beginning of the episode about what it means about our cultural moment that more and more works about outer space are dark and, and oppressive and industrial and 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 ask a question or shed a light on our desire to go there in the first place um also read the troika because not enough people have it's not popular enough and it is a phenomenal book um and we leave you with Guillaume david's vanille's legacy thank you for listening and enjoy mm-hmm.